It's the Braincast, Braincast, the PopBrain.com Braincast, Braincast, listen to the show Because you're in for the PopBrain.com Braincast, Braincast, oh Hello and welcome to the Breakcast, the official podcast of the Pop Break. I am your host, Aaron Sarnecki, here for a special podcast on the 40th anniversary of The Shining. And I am joined today, as I am pretty much always, by my brother, Josh. Say hello, Josh. Oh man, 40 years? I remember like it was yesterday. Right, Just kidding. yeah. I wasn't alive. <laughs> Even Bill's not that old. Ooh, oh, Bill, I apologize for that already. <laughs> so, yes, we are here to discuss The Shining, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary. Um, and uh, it, it does feel kind of weird. It's like, I know it's like, yeah, 1980 was 40 years ago, but it's like, I don't know. That, that means like Jaws is almost 50. That is the old shark. Yeah. So, um, as we do, uh, pretty much for all these podcasts, uh, I wanted to ask you, do you remember when you first saw this movie? I think so. It was not the optimal viewing experience though. I'm not entirely sure, but I think I first saw it when I was in college in a friend's dorm room. And I remember sitting on the ground, uh, hopefully, I think on a carpet or rug. Um, and they had a giant TV in their room for some reason. And there was a bunch of us um, crowded in there watching the movie. Why of all the movies that was what they wanted to watch? I have no idea. Um, and why there was so many of us in there watching it? I have no idea. Um but I'm pretty sure that's when I saw it first. And I think I saw it all in one sitting. I don't think I missed anything. And then rewatched it um, for this podcast. What about you? When was the, the first time you saw it? So I also saw this movie in college. There was a screening of it. As many colleges would do, they would have uh, free movie screenings, uh, I don't know, maybe not everybody had free movie screenings, but um, I, I, this was probably around Halloween. They decided that they were going to pick an old movie, so they picked The Shining. Uh, so I saw it with some friends in one of the uh, auditoriums, or I guess it's technically one of the ballrooms or whatever that they would use uh, for the projection. And uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's been a while since I've seen it as well. Um, probably close to seven, I want to say seven years. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's been a while to, to go back to this movie then. Right. Um, I want to ask you, um, do you remember what your opinion of the movie is or was back then? I remember being interested in it, but not being particularly blown away because I think my biggest um, familiarity or the thing that I, I knew most about the movie going in is that it's supposed to be a scary movie, that it's a, a horror movie. And I think going in that first time, I was expecting something different than what I got. Because by the time I was done watching it the first time, I didn't think it was all that scary. I thought it was creepy, definitely creepy, but not scary. I, I wonder if you had a, a similar take the first time you saw it. Right, and we will get into the scariness uh, of it. Um, I had a similar opinion. I was interested in it. I wasn't blown away by it. Um... And I kind of just didn't think about it after I saw the movie. It, it wasn't a movie that really stuck with me. 
Um, mm. Which I know there are probably people if they're listening, they're like, "What are they talking about?" The this movie is a very highly regarded movie by a lot of people. Um, but yeah, uh, it sounds like we both had uh, similar opinions um, about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's no Rodel Dorado. That's just a cinematic masterpiece, right? But um. Yeah, um, rewatching it now, has your opinion changed at all? It has changed a bit. I do think I have a greater appreciation for it, partially because I've read the book since watching it the first time. It's It's been a while since I've read the book also, so my memory is a little fuzzy on that, um, but I know that there's there's differences in that. And I know that we can get into that later. Um, but I, I was really taken more by some of the ambiguities that they included in the, the film that aren't really in the book. And so that was, uh, really noticeable for me this time around. And thinking of like the creepiness versus scary factor, I actually did think it was scarier um, now, but I'm not sure if that's just because the idea of someone being stuck inside of one building for an extended period of time feels way too close to home with everything that we're all going through right now with this pandemic. That's, that's an interesting point. I didn't even consider the parallels there. Yeah. I was reading an article earlier about, um, best movies that take place predominantly in one location. And this was number two. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, for me, my opinion, if I'm going to be honest, didn't really change. Um, okay. Uh, I, I, we, we, I sent you a, a sort of analysis of the movie before this. I don't know if you got to watch it, but, um, I, I said, it's not that long. And you said, unlike the movie, <laughs> Yeah, I didn't get a chance to watch that. But yeah, the the movie is long. Is that what you were feeling watching it yesterday? Yeah, and I I know I'm an impatient movie watcher. Um, but, you know, when I realized there was still another hour, I'm like, oh, come on. Why can't you just say, here's Johnny already? It's taking forever. Right. But, um... Yeah, it's not a fast movie. That's right. Uh, it's not a fast movie, um, but it's it's interesting. We, we going into the plot. It's the plot is not all that complicated. Um, no, it's not. Um, the plot is basically uh, Jack Nicholson's character is charged with looking over this hotel uh, for the winter. Um, and he's there with his family. And in the past, there was a violent axe murder where the previous caretaker murdered his family. And it looks like history is going to repeat itself. And that's basically the plot. I mean, there's supernatural elements. Like his son has some sort of psychic abilities. It seems like the he's being driven to violence by some spirits in the, in the uh, hotel. But like I said, it's pretty simple. You know, they say, Hey, there was this ax murder here. Hope it doesn't happen again. And it's like, okay. And then you're like, <laughs> as soon as like they get there, like, yeah, that's going to happen again. <laughs> yeah. If you weren't, um, you know, given a hint by the opening of the movie that this is not going to be a happy movie. I don't know what to say to you because I don't know how they made landscape shots so unsettling and weird, but they did. I think it's the music. The music for this movie is all over the place. Oh, the, the opening of this movie is one of the most memorable parts. Um, and, uh, the shining the theme, opening text, the, the opening mm. text, the way it just sc- sc- 
scrolls it 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 doesn't really it's not normal the way most uh you know credits just you know fade in and out it just keeps scrolling and that that is sort of even that really adds to the eeriness factor of the opening yeah although for me it was mostly thinking this looks like it was made in powerpoint right the font they use is very basic was it comic sans i think it was comic sans. i don't i don't think it was comic sans with a nice teal color i don't i don't know but um actually interesting fact is that um bonus footage of all that when they shot the theatrical so this is sort of a a tangent but there are there are different endings to blade runner which you may have heard um they use for the theatrical ending where they're like we want a happy ending uh they took leftover footage of the opening of the shining to make it look like they're driving through the country. So in that case, the footage is used in a completely different context where it's supposed to be happy. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how much music can change. Right. Yeah. How terrifying a, a scenery is. Right. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so going into it, I, I'm curious. What do you want to just go through it chronologically, or well, I, what do you think? Chronologically, I mean, I don't. Want to say, there's there's long spots where it feels like not much is actually going on. Like they get there, he's they they like they start seeing ghosts. And then it sort of is a short, no, a, a long, long, you know, path to insanity. Yeah, I, it, it does show Jack Nelson's character, Jack, which I thought he was always named Jack in all of his movies. I was just checking. Apparently not true. It's only like a good 10% maybe. Um, but Jack Torrance, um, he, his descent into madness is gradual but he's a jerk from the very beginning yeah i mean and i think part of that is just jack nicholson being jack nicholson yeah even when he's in that interview to start to be to get the position at the hotel he's already i don't know got a, a way of talking and walking around and just being that is unsettling, which apparently is one reason why Stephen King did not want Jack Nicholson to be cast in the role. Right. And, and we will, we'll get into it as an adaptation, but, um, you seem like you like Jack Nicholson's performance. Oh, I, I think it's, it's a, a really strong performance. Um, I don't know if it's, it's, it's hard for me to rate though, or to critique, because I feel like I only see this side of Jack Nicholson. I, I haven't seen too, too many of his movies, but I feel like he's always unhinged in them. So I don't know how much of this is just Jack Nicholson sleepwalking through a role or if it's a really strong performance or out of the ordinary for him. Um, but he does a great job of showing this person lose their mind and just become this. I mean, like I said, he, he seemed like an awful person to begin with. And he's the as quickly as he um, starts going after Wendy and um, oh, like the other thing about this movie is just that it's a really chilling depiction of a abusive relationship. Right. And um, that definitely fits into uh, the themes of the book, uh, which are still present in the movie, um, which, uh, again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, but, um, yeah, I would say that I like Jack Nicholson. Um, there is a, 
not an eeriness about him, but something off about him from the start. So mm. by the time he does go full crazy, you're like, I, I you know, it's like, oh, well, this was always going to happen. <laughs> yeah. E- even from the very beginning, when they talk about his, uh, his previous bout of alcoholism and then presented as, Oh, it was, it was five months ago. There's a, there's a sense that Wendy is covering up for him or doesn't want to face the fact that Jack is already in a terrible place. And as soon as she says that it's, you know, it's going downhill from there. Like there's, this is not a movie that surprises you with what happens to, to his character. Um, by any sense of the imagination. Right. Um, and speaking of Wendy, um, played by Shelley Duvall, um, what, what is, uh, if we're going down the performances, what, what was your opinion of her performance in this movie? Um, I think she's all right in this. I think that th- this is actually something that, um, Brie and I had talked about beforehand. Um, thinking of all the times um, that Wendy kind of just shrieks and kind of gasps and doesn't know what to do when she's got a knife in her hands, like just stab the person. And so I don't think that's a, a critique of uh, Shelley Duvall's performance as much as the way they present Wendy as being a bit meek um, and wanting her to really take action and fight back against Jack. So I, I think in terms of getting that across, um, the do do Vault does a great job with it. Um, it's just it's not the most uh, I don't know. It's 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 not something you want from your your heroine. You want to see them really take charge, right? But that I I agree that in a traditional movie, in that would be expected. Um, but when you're in a Stanley Kubrick movie, there really are no heroes. There are characters. Everybody um, everybody's sort of a machine that moves the plot along. I don't know. Yeah. And that makes sense. And I don't want to be too hard on Wendy as a character because... Like I said, I think this movie is a very clear depiction of an abusive um, relationship, even if it's not. I think there are hints that it could be physical, but definitely emotionally abusive. And so I think all of that makes sense and and frames her reaction. But it doesn't. It's hard to really. um, I don't know what the word is. She's not a. Uh, a Ripley. She's not um, a Sarah Connor. Oh, absolutely and that not. Absolutely not. And, and that's that's somewhat off-putting when when you really want to see, um, you know, a woman take charge and just show her abuser that she's not going to put up with it. But it's, I mean, like you said, that maybe that's Kubrick's way of approaching the world. Right. Um, before we get into the themes, which we already kind of touched base on. Um, any other uh, performances stand out to you? I do want to talk about the the, the child actor in this. Uh, Danny Lloyd is Danny Lawrence. Why does everyone have the same first name as their character? Um, okay, it's only two people. But I think in terms of child actors, I think he does pretty well in this. The only thing that I would critique, and this is by no means his fault, is that I kept getting him confused with the kid from the Santa Claus because they had the same haircut. <laughs> okay. I don't know. They both have a bowl cut, and it kept confusing me. It's like, that. Where's, is Tim Allen going to be in this movie? Tim Allen? Oh, no. Okay, no. Um, so but that was the one thing that threw me for a loop, and that's just some stupid thing that kept getting caught in my mind. But like I said, in terms of, Child actors, I thought he was good. Do you do you agree? Um, 
I think he's perfectly serviceable. I, I was actually, I was curious what your opinion of Scatman Crothers as uh, Doc, no, Dick Halloran. Dick Halloran was. Oh, I thought he was really good. Um, I think he's got, he, he did a, a good job balancing the warmth of trying to connect with Danny and be this um, welcoming figure. But then later, as he realizes what's going on, he really show the see the horror in him with especially with that infamous scene of where his eyes just really bulge out when he realizes what's going on at the overlook. Right. Um, he definitely does have a warmth to him, but I don't know that scene where he he meets Danny is very inviting. But then he, he, he's sort of a flip flips a switch when he starts talking about the their special abilities so the shining is basically a sort of a sixth sense of telepathy um some sort of future sight mm-hmm. is nothing that you haven't seen in these kind of stories before actually sort of similar to the dead zone. Uh, another Stephen King uh, story. Yes. Yeah. So he, he's not moving things with his mind. So he's more professor X than Jean Grey. Right. And, and again, removing things with his mind is more carry. So a lot of like psychic abilities, making things catch on fire. That's fire starter right a lot of that's a lot of things in stephen king stories are are like that um i will say and i'm a little surprised that you didn't mention it that as much as i like dick halloran he does come off as a stereotype oh that 100 percent i i was you know the performance yes uh the stereotypical uh um, you know, black gentleman who's, you know, very friendly, uh, sort of like, I guess the uncle, if it would have been called in a, uh, a Southern household. Mm, that's, that's interesting. That's not where I saw you going with that. No, but there's the other one where he, he's the, he's the black character, who has magical abilities, who helps the white character. Yes. Okay. That's where I thought you were going with that. Cause he definitely falls into, into that category. And that is something that has been in other Stephen King stories. Yes. Most notably the green mile, probably the green mile, and, but also and the, the stand. stand. Yeah. Um, for me, that doesn't, it's not a deal breaker um, the same way that the uh, the Oracle is not the way that she is in the Matrix. is mm-hmm. It's definitely a stereotype, but it is noticeable. And I would I would understand if people took issue with it, but it does make me wonder if with it with a filmmaker like Kubrick, if. That was very intentional. Uh huh. Or, or, or is it just that's the way it's written in the story, and that's just Stephen King? I, I can't remember. I'm not sure how they really characterize him in in the book. Right. Um. But I, I, I do think it is something that depending on the way you look at it, may have not aged well. And there there are other things about it that also don't age well. Um, I mean, and, and some of it, I think, is not so much that it ages well, but that it raises an eyebrow, but that's intentional, the way that they make a remark about um, the hotel being on a Native American burial ground. That's something that sounds intentional. Right, um, and I'm but, glad you mentioned that because I wanted to, that's a big part of, um, the way people interpret this movie. Um, right. So I, I think that's something that's intentional that, you know, in terms of how it's aged, like that's 
it's supposed to bring up those thoughts and those questions. But then there's more throwaway lines of where um, just even when they, they first go to the hotel and the the person running the hotel has Wendy go to the kitchen. It's like, OK, why can't Jack go to the kitchen? Oh, so this... just well, just like gender stereotypes and, and sexist things like that. And there's right. a few other. Well, I mean, I'm not going to uh, judge a, a movie on the 80s. Uh, you know, when gender dynamics were, again, we said this was 40 years ago. Um, but it is, it is interesting to look at it in that lens to see how expectations of, uh, characters have changed. Yeah. But sorry, I, I kind of went on a tangent there. I'm not sure if you want no, to go I more mean, into that. I mean, it's what's your opinion of the movie is. It's all welcome. Uh, well, well, I guess while I'm talking about that, there there was a few other things like, um, like I, I don't know what having the the ghost butler of Delbert Grady referring to Dick Halloran using the N word. I don't know what I think that's supposed to get across. Right when he does that, it first it seems like well he's supposed to be this. Uh, uh, this figure from the twenties who's very snooty, who would mm. v- very much think down on a black person because of the way you know things were back then. But it does make you think: is is that uh, again? Is is that an, an intentional thing? Is is that, is there some thematic, you know, significance to that? Because the 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 theory on all the Native American uh, imagery is that the movie is really symbolic of the Native American genocide by uh, European and American settlers. Uh, you know, you see a lot of, you know, the land is, was Native American. Um, the motifs have been taken from Native American culture, but there are no Native Americans in the movie. Right. So is the movie somehow a commentary on that? Um And I'm inclined to think, given how Stanley Kubrick was always kind of focused on the ugliness of humanness, humanity, that 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 is very intentional. It's not just throwaway. Right. I mean, I I think, is is it fair to say that Kubrick was a a misanthrope? I I think that his fans will will tell you otherwise, that he's he's misunderstood as a misanthrope. But I I very much, having seen his movies, yes, I would categorize him as a misanthrope. Of course, not to say that if if this is supposed to be a social commentary on um, Native American genocide, that that's not called for and that's not um, a, you know, something that's worth exploring and discussing and a really valid point. Um, I I don't know if it's necessarily the same point that was there in the novel, um, but that's I mean, that's really what happens when you have Stanley Kubrick come in and he brings his own take on things and he has his own perspective and potential dislike of other people going on. Right. Um, and, um, so you read the novel. Um, yes, it was probably six years ago. I was probably still in, in college. So what, what's your recollection of it? 
I remember in enjoying it. I think it's always strange going into a book when you've seen the movie first. So there were things that I was expecting and things that I, I wasn't expecting to happen. And there are notable differences, but the the framework is still the same. It's still Jack and his um, descent into madness and then him killing his family. Or trying but, to kill his family. Or, tr- or trying to kill his family, yes. Um, so I, I don't know if I preferred one of the over the other i my only real takeaway from it that i remember is it benefited from being able to see other people's perspectives and really get into their heads because there's obviously you get into to jack's head because you see him um interacting with the ghosts and um having these really dramatic breakdowns but when it comes to what Danny's thinking. Um, you've got some pretty dramatic shots of him uh, and his eyes, you know, bulging and him shaking and like frothing in the mouth. Um, or of Wendy, you have her kind of shirking away, but you don't really get a sense of how do they feel about being there other than how they respond to Jack. And the book does a really good job of fleshing out how the experience is emotionally and mentally affecting them. And and that's just something you don't get in this because I think the the book is a lot more interested in all three of the characters, whereas the movie seems much more interested in Jack solely, I think. Right. Um, from what I've heard, um, Wendy is actually much more the type of character that you wanted her to be in the book. Yeah. Yeah, that that is true. Uh, her physical description is also different. Uh, in Shelley Duvall has black hair. She has blonde hair, I think, in the book. Ooh, maybe I can't remember that one. Uh, I think she's described as being very good looking. In uh, so there, there are some differences. Yeah, I I can't remember those in particular, um, but it was it's I mentioned earlier that Stephen King has said that he is not a fan of this um, interpretation, adaptation of his work. And it sounds like two of the biggest things are um, one, how it portrays Wendy, but the other one is really how it views um, Jack because in the, the book. Jack is, I mean, he's a stand-in for Stephen King because the, the book was really almost um, autobiographical about Stephen King's own struggles with alcoholism and um, issues with his family. Um, and so there's a much more human and, <clears throat> excuse me, um, sympathetic view of Jack in the book, whereas the movie... Like we said, like Jack is never really a likable character in the movie. Right. Um, like looking up uh, again, I haven't read the book, but things that Stephen King has said that it was inspired by, you know, his drinking substance abuse problem. Um, and just the general uh, negative, th- you know, feelings he had about his own family. Um I think becoming a parent and, you know, feeling that afraid that he would ever do something to hurt them Mm -hmm. because being a parent is not easy and it's so, it would be so easy to go down that road. So I can see why that, especially when you have an alcohol issue so I can see why that manifested in uh, the plot of the novel. Right. And I think the movie tries to play it both ways at times. When Wendy first or when, when Wendy comes to to see Jack after he's screaming at his his typewriter and, and Jack says, oh, I had this, this terrible nightmare. Um, 
And in in the book, I, I can't remember if that same scene was in the book, but from the way Jack's presented in the book, that sounds or, or that characterization seems tragic because he's a, a generally a, a good person or someone you can feel for who is going down this this path. Whereas in the movie, it almost seems predetermined that, OK, yeah, we know this guy's already terrible. Like these, this isn't fooling anyone. Right. Um, and I, I'm glad you bring that scene up because um, uh, he's supposed to be sort of remorseful and shocked that he would even have those thoughts. But for me, it just becomes it, it comes off as completely unbelievable. It's just like, yeah, no, you you don't feel bad about that. You're going to go chase your family with an axe later right he i mean he already blew up at wendy earlier in the movie just because she interrupted him when he was i know everybody was was everybody was pretty much jovial in the movie up until that point and then she just wants to bring him some lunch and he's like yeah don't do that don't come in here when i'm writing right and that's why i think that's really a turning point in the movie Mm. Right. And, and that's why I think it, it's such a vivid depiction of a abusive relationship because Wendy is doing so much um, to assist Jack and try to encourage Jack and make excuses for Jack when he does do things like even at the beginning of the film, when she's talking with the doctor about um, when Jack dislocated Danny's arm, you can see how she is stuck in this relationship. And I think that shows you that balancing act of Jack's character of how he has moments when he can be somewhat tender. Um, but overall he's just, you know, it, it only takes very little for that facade to get off and for him to just really show his true colors. Right. Um, now I want to ask you a question. Um, so you think that, for you, the scariest part of this movie is the abusive relationship. I'm not sure if I would say that's the the scariest part. Going going back to whether it's creepy or it's scary, I think that is the most chilling part. I think the scariest part is the setting more than anything. The setting and the way that the music um, combine, because even though this is a huge hotel, there's something really claustrophobic about it. And once again, I don't know if that's just because we're living in, you know, the time of pandemic and everything seems claustrophobic right now. Um, But the sense of them being in this maze was really palpable, Um, like the, the amount of like how unsettling that was. Even, you know, even just seeing Danny going through the hallways and, oh, it's just a big circle. Um, that was really unsettling. And then the music the whole time is just unrelenting and suddenly really loud and hurt my ears, which was not great. But I, I don't know. Does does that make any sense? Yeah. Um, but this brings up an interesting point. I'm not scared by this movie, like almost at all. Uh, there are scenes that are unsettling. Um, I, I think the scene again when Danny is in the hallway and he sees the the daughters and it flashes to their corpses. That's and there's blood everywhere. That's unsettling. Mm. Right. Um, and and there are some things like the score like um like the sequence in two uh, room 237 where uh jack finds the woman in the bathtub that basically like becomes like a living corpse right like decomposes suddenly and, and then like it shows her like in like floating in the bathtub is like that's unsettling but and um and the the famous here's johnny scene 
Like, those all scenes are very unsettling to me. But I just wouldn't describe this movie as scary. Um, And so I talked about my experience seeing it in college. And you want to know what people's reaction to this movie was when we saw it? They They laughed at it. Yeah, that's what I figured. And I wonder that... And this this is something I really wanted to talk to you about um, with horror movies is is it some there's there are there are some notion there are some things in this movie that seem like they are intentionally supposed to be funny. Mm. Um, Would you have something in mind? Mainly the. Um, Uh, the part at the end where it cuts to him frozen alive, the way that that's edited and it just jumps to him frozen is, is very comedic in my opinion. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I thought that it was comedic in that. I don't think the, the, uh, the prop or whatever they used to make it look like he was frozen. Didn't look very good. Right. Um, and, and things like the guy in the wolf mask doing something with one of the butlers. Yeah, that, okay, that's what I thought you were going to mention. That, I, I'm unsure if I would qualify as any of those as comedic. The thing that I thought of when those scenes and those moments came up was, it seemed very similar to what I know about uh, Twin Peaks. And I just, uh, full disclosure, I've not viewed Twin Peaks. I've not seen anything from uh, David Lynch. Um, so I, I can't speak to how similar it is, but from what I know of it, it seemed to have that kind of bizarre, otherworldly randomness to it. Right. I don't know. If, I don't know if you can speak to more of that than I can. I think you've seen at least one or two David Lynch movies. I have. I watched. Or I mentioned that I watched Eraserhead, and I did that before going to bed. And I still have not had nightmares, and I'm thankful for that. Um, <laughs> there is definitely an eeriness. I think. I th- I could be wrong, but I think Eraserhead might have actually been an inspiration for this movie. That's what I just read. So yeah, I'm, I'm guessing. A racerhead so, is a. If you think this movie is weird, Racerhead is like in like the top like three weirdest movies I've ever seen. Maybe the weirdest. Okay. Well, I've got no desire to watch that, so that's good to know. Yeah. No, um, you wouldn't enjoy. It. <laughs> but the thing of scary movies. So, what would you qualify as a movie that you did find scary then? Um, so that's really tough for me because I sort of divide things into being scary and then being harrowing and being or intense. So a movie and some people will probably groan. I I don't know. I don't know if there's been a backlash already because everything that's popular gets a backlash. I thought that a quiet place was scary. Mm hmm. You know, some people said, oh, the moment that they show the monster, it's not scary for scary anymore. For me, that made it scarier because it was so well done. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I, I don't know. There, there are other movies that I don't think are necessarily scary, but they have harrowing moments. Another Stephen King one is the, uh, the adaptation of Cujo, where it's all about a a mom and her child trapped in a car with a dog trying to kill them yeah and and it, it, for me for a person like me where that is a very intense movie i can only imagine being a parent watching that movie right um and and then same things like um i don't know if i consider it scary but the exorcist is a very intense movie Mm. Um, but it, it does make me wonder 
is it just things why is it that people laughed at something like the shining when i saw it is it just that we come to a point where we're originally scared of something and then as time passes on as it gets older as it gets to its 40th anniversary that we're no longer afraid of it maybe i i think it can be that depending on how things age because you know it, it's one thing seeing effects and seeing how something's presented at the time it was made and then going back like oh like like thinking of all those really old horror movies or monster movies where looking back we're now able to say oh well you can see the zipper on the back that's not scary i don't know if it's that effect or i think it all depends on the audience and the person because I know I went into, I, I don't see many horror movies, but I remember seeing, oh, was it The Conjuring? One of those haunted house kind of movies um, in theaters. And I laughed the whole time. And I, you know, I don't think that has anything to do with whether or not it was scary. I think it was just how I react to being scared, I guess, if that makes any sense. Right. Um but yeah, different things scare different people. Um, um, for me, I I feel like the medium of movies is not the optimal thing to make me scared. I think the optimal thing to make me scared is playing a game that's a horror game. Right, uh, since you've been playing so much Resident Evil. Uh, yeah, and some people be like, and I'm talking about the old Resident Evils, like the ones for the PlayStation 1. And some people will be like, those games aren't scary. And that makes me like, is it because you, they never were scary? Is it because they, they've aged so much? Right. And I think that also goes back to the idea of like, what, what do we mean when we say something scary? Or what do we say when it's a horror movie? Because I, I think the idea of something being scary goes to this idea of oh we're screaming we're, we're like clutching like our our armrests as we watch this we're holding our breath and that may not necessarily be the most accurate way of describing how we react to, to horror and scary things sometimes it's just the general sense of unease um because i don't know, I, I know there's been a huge backlash over the years against jump scares as a means of scaring people in movies i would say that is something that still legitimately scares me but that doesn't mean it's good horror and once again i i mean i'm not one who really experiences a lot of horror movies so i'm not one to to go into that too much but it's that's where my mind goes with this debate is what is a horror movie right and this movie definitely i i don't think I wouldn't qualify the the rotting woman even as a jump scare. Or I, I wouldn't really qualify anything in this movie as a jump scare. It's definitely more atmosphere. And I honestly think that for for a movie that is longer lasting and jump scares feels more cheap. Right, and it goes back to um, how much you get out of it after a second viewing. Because I, I know you said that your opinion on the scariness of the movie didn't change much, but I'd say mine remained intact or somewhat increased between viewings. And that's not something you get so much from a horror movie that's reliant on things like jump scares. Because once you know when something happens, it's no longer going to be scary. But if you have an atmosphere that's unsettling, that's going to remain scary still, or at least, um, you know, uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned uh, the way they were weaving through the uh, the hotel. Um, just going in terms of direction, um, the the amount of tracking shots in this movie is really impressive. I don't know if you for paying attention to that. Uh, only so much in that they were following Danny around on his, his 
little tricycle thing. No, but even them just showing them around the hotel, like, or people walking around, there's a lot of tracking shots in this movie. And that takes a lot of, as somebody who knows a little, well, I mean, I'm not going to say that I know that much, but has been on, a, you know, a student set and a couple of, you know, small movie sets like that takes a lot of time and dedication to to make things like that work so mm. as somebody who has a more technical background those are things that i can appreciate okay yeah i i don't have a eye for the technical aspects as much as you do so i didn't notice that but i i did notice the way that a lot of those shots were set up in terms of how much space was left in there, especially in the scenes in that big um, foyer um, where Jack is writing or the big area where um, Wendy and Danny are watching TV, that there's so much open space uh, in those uh, shots. Spe- speaking of him typing, like I can't not hear a typewriter and not think of Resident Evil now. And, and, and like seeing him typing and seeing like the stairs immediately brought me back to uh, the first Resident Evil game, which I wouldn't be surprised if there was some, the setting is sort of similar. I wouldn't be surprised if it was influenced by The Shining, um, which was, was, was another thing that I wanted to mention that this movie, it's been very pervasive through pop culture. There's something about hmm. it. Yeah, I, I'd i say of all Stephen King adaptations, it is definitely in the top five of how well it's known. And that's saying something because Stephen King has a ton of well-known uh, adaptations. Right. I mean, you could argue that it is now the most well-known because of how much money it made. Yeah. But I, I, I think the, the unsettlingness of it is really what makes it so, um, memorable that, and there's just a few really iconic moments from it. And I think you need those iconic moments to have, um, staying power and just between the, the red rum, the, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy, the twins and Jack with the axe, like those are all really vivid images that, I mean, even before either of us saw this movie, we knew about those scenes. We knew about those moments. Right. Would you argue that they're less scary though, because I mean, there was just a commercial or the Super Bowl <laughs> where <laughs> Brian Cranston is trying to give, uh, this actress Mountain Dew Zero Sugar, as as the the two girls, yeah, and as the two girls, like so. The more we parody something like The Shining, is does I mean I think there's an inherent desire to take something that we feel is scary and poke fun of it to make ourselves feel better. Oh yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, that's the the basic premise of uh, Monsters, Inc., right? I guess. You got to laugh at the things that scare you or I I can't think of it. I feel like there's a movie or some character where, well, oh, well, it, uh, that's what I'm thinking of, it. Once the, um, once the, the kids no longer act scared and are able to stand up to it, it loses his power. And I think that, that's exactly what people do when they parody this movie. So you, so you're saying that when we parody something like this, are we diminishing its power or, or is it the things that are truly special that will still, we poke fun at them, but when we watch them, there's still a level of seriousness to them. I, I think it's both. I think that we try to, claim ownership over something by saying we can laugh it off. But there are still times when 
depending on the setting and depending on where we're at, it's still going to remain just as terrifying. So thinking about your viewing experience and my viewing experience, the one first saw it, those are not ideal, right? So you sitting in a, with a bunch of other um, college students seeing it and a lot of them laughing, like for whatever reason, that was not a venue. It sounds like that was good for setting that sense of horror. Whereas now, you know, being, you know, in my apartment and having not really gone anywhere else for the last couple of months, um, that was the kind of setting that puts you in the mindset of, okay, being trapped somewhere for a half a year is a really scary idea. Right. Um, so, um, were there any other thoughts that you had about this movie? Uh, anything that stuck out? I was curious to hear what you thought about the very end with the picture um, from 1921 and where it zooms in and it seems to show someone or Jack himself in that picture. What do you take from that? Right. There have been interpretations. I mean, there have been interpretations of this movie that I don't agree with that, you know, there are no ghosts. Everything is in Jack and Danny's heads, which I... That would that would also mean that Wendy has gone a little crazy too, which I just I don't buy. Mm. Um, well, then again, you were talking about that sense of isolation that could just make everybody go crazy. I but but Danny has his special powers, so I I I I don't believe that theory. But but going back to the the photograph it, the implication the most popular one and apparently the one that Kubrick's has endorsed is that it's supposed to mean that he was always the caretaker um he was reincarnated or something and he's been brought mm. back to the overlook mm. uh, but there have been other interpretations that um the overlook somehow absorbed his essence into itself after he died. Yes. And that is the interpretation that I like more because something that I, I noticed a lot more and felt a lot more in this viewing is it seems like Jack also has some level of, the shining that he's able to have some of that. And that's why he's able to. So, um, see the, see the ghost so vividly and access them so quickly. Whereas Wendy doesn't really, and that's maybe why she only has experiences with them at the very end, because she doesn't have that innate ability the same way that Danny and Jack do. That's interesting. Um, I have never heard that. Uh, I don't know if that has any basis in the book or anything like that. I can't remember, but that's but an, that's, that's an interesting interpretation. That so you think that Jack has some level of the ability that Danny and Halloran have? Yes, that but he's just not aware of it, and that's why he's able to get uh, absorbed by the hotel. It's it's the same reason why the hotel didn't want Danny. Well, that's the other difference in the in the book, I think it makes it much more clear that the hotel wants Danny um, because of his powers. Whereas in the film, it just seems like they want Jack to, to kill them just because. Um, so I think that's, that's how I'm reading it. Like I said, I, I can't remember if that's something that is really explored in the book, but my interpretation. Right. And I mean, um, depending on the kind of movie fan you are, there are some people who say, oh, there's only one right, you know, interpretation of a movie. And that's, you know, the director's interpretation or the screenwriter's interpretation. Um, other people are like, hey, it's it's a work of art. You can view it however you want to. Um, and I'm not going to 
answer that question for anybody. Um, if that makes the movie more meaningful for you, I'm not going to uh, disagree with it. No. But I, I appreciate the level of ambiguity in the movie and how it does lend itself to interpretation. And I think that's the other thing that's made it will stand the test of 40 years. Right. Um, so you, we mentioned, I, I talked to you a little bit before we, uh, decide we were going to talk, uh, today and you asked you know should you have read dr sleep which is the or seen the movie which is the sequel sort of sequel spin-off to this movie and book yes and i think it's it's fine because i'd rather view this as the 40th anniversary in the vacuum except um, in relation to the book, but I don't, I haven't read the book or seen the movie. I don't, are you, do you have any interest in them? Uh, now that I've seen this movie again, I have a little more interest. I, I mean, I, I heard it was pretty good. Yeah. I know that, um, former TV editor, Matt Taylor, um, really likes it and it's, it's villain. So, that's a pretty glowing endorsement in my book. Right. Um, so speaking of endorsements, uh, would you recommend this movie to, I mean, if you haven't seen this movie and be listening to the podcast and I don't know what's wrong with you, but it, we spoiled it all. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it, is this a movie that you would recommend to somebody I think so. I don't think it's a enjoyable movie um, or a fun movie, but I think it's an important movie. And so I think it's worth watching at least once um, just to appreciate um, Kubrick as a filmmaker and to understand how it's influenced pop culture so much since then. What do you think? Uh, I would definitely say if you want to understand all the thing, all the references in pop culture, then it's definitely a must watch. Um, I would think it kind of have to know the kind of person you're recommending it to what they mm. find scary, what their maturity level is and stuff like that. Right, because you don't want people laughing at it again, like your like your first experience. Right, but I mean, again, you laughed at The Conjuring, and you know, some people, you know, whether you know, for some people, you know, a forty-year-old movie is just not scary, or they it just never was going to be scary for them. Um, it's it's subjective, right. So, so you seem to not give it a a huge endorsement. I I think that it's in when movies are this popular, it's sort of important to, to see them. The, the kind of the same way I feel about when we talked about Gladiator. Like that movie is very popular, and I feel like you're sort of missing out on pop culture if you're if you haven't seen it. Mm. yeah that that's a good as opposed to a movie like the road to el dorado where like you're not really missing out on much if you haven't seen it why are you no i disagree hard disagree that is a cinematic masterpiece we will never find a more relevant or important film to talk about on this podcast but um is there, there anything else that you want to, uh, the ad? 
I don't think so. I, I, I'm, I, I'm glad we decided to go back and, and think about this. I know we were, we had a few different things in mind. Um, cause I talked about the Phantom or not the Phantom Menace, uh, Revenge of the Sith. I know today is the, the anniversary of that as we're talking. Um, so th- there's a lot of movies out there we could have talked about, but this is, this required us to, to get a little bit more in depth. So I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, yeah, I think this was a good idea. Um, as we're closing, where can people find you on the site? So I can be found at thepopbreak.com. Um, I do a monthly column for the site, um, The Couch Potato, and it's based off of just random thoughts I have about television each month. Um, this previous month, I talked about the transition of the Star Wars franchise into television and why I think that's a very good thing and should continue moving forward. Um, past um, Couch Potatoes have also included comparing Westworld and Jurassic Park, um, why we love Baby Yoda, just a lot of random things that just kind of come to my mind. Um, and you can also hear me, if you're not tired of hearing my voice yet, um, in my podcast with Bill and Alex, um, where we talk about TV each month. Um, and this month we talked about the um, new show on Netflix by Damien Chazelle. Um, so if you haven't listened to that already, it should be in your podcast feed. Go check it out. Right. Uh, and uh, you do have a Twitter. I do, but I barely post anything on it. But if you really want to follow me, um, you can find me on Twitter at Jostronecki. Right, and if you want to find me on Twitter, uh, I'm at Aaron Sarnecki. Um, doesn't get any more simple than that. Um, I will be more active on the site soon. Uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the final season is coming up, so I will be reviewing that for the site. Um, there's something else coming up that... I said I was going to review, um, and I don't see things changing, so I'm probably going to review that too. So, yeah, stuff coming for me, and um, I I already have our next couple uh, podcasts in mind, so uh, we will definitely, you'll definitely hear from us in June. Yes as we talk about Rotel Rado once again. Yeah, that that was the shining uh, 40th anniversary. I hope you've enjoyed us talking about it. Stay shiny, everyone. <laughs>